You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Well, I survived my birthday, so that means this podcast still exists. And you guys, the Academy Museum is incredible, and I didn't want to leave. It is so freaking cool. After loving and studying film for as long as I have, getting to see a fully comprehensive place that shows the progression and development of the art form that I love so much and that I've devoted my life to was just absolutely thrilling. I can't even put it into words how awesome it was. If you're in the L.A. area, make sure to check out their screening schedule, too, if you're planning on visiting. There's tons and tons of really incredible and occasionally rare films playing there, which you aren't going to want to miss. Their new theater, the David Geffen Theater, is gorgeous. I saw Bride of Frankenstein there the other day on 35mm. So cool. I'd go into a bit more detail, but this is a pretty big episode this week, and I've got a birthday party to go to tonight, and I'm already starting like three hours late into recording, so let's get this show on the road. I'm carless until my means of transportation gets out of the hospital, so there's only one film for two-sentence movie reviews of movies I saw in a movie theater, as I've only been able to go once in the last month. And that this week is The Eyes of Tammy Faye. I didn't know much about Tammy Faye Baker before I saw this film, except for the broad strokes and vague memories from the season of the surreal life she was on on VH1. So this film was pretty eye-opening for me, to say the least. I spent most of the time watching this movie wondering if she was stupid or willfully ignorant about her husband and his associates' business practices and just where the hell all that cash was coming from. The film is very well done, it's very well shot, and the costumes are great and the sets are just super 80s. It's masterfully acted and is very likely going to provide Jessica Chastain with her long overdue award season sweep. Do you need to see it in a theater? Yeah. But if you're with an engaged audience, there are several moments that are fun to experience in a group setting. Anyway, here we go. New month, new theme. Halloween is my favorite holiday and my gateway into the genre was slasher movies. So this month, we're covering some of the most famous killers to brandish a knife, machete, hook, what have you. The idea of an unstoppable force of carnage and chaos has captivated cinema audiences for decades. And this week, we start off with the masked murderer that kicked off the slasher genre back in 1978. The film would spawn seven sequels in its original run, and then one reboot with one sequel, and in the last three years, two new films that ignore everything that took place after the first one. Confusing enough for you? Don't worry, as always, I'll break it all down this week as we delve into the history of the murdering man in the Captain Kirk mask, Michael Myers. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. (laughs) 
movies were nothing new when director John Carpenter was approached to make a film about a masked murderer whom stalks and kills babysitters. Horror films of all kinds have ebbed and flowed in popularity from the early days of cinema and by the late 1960s and 70s when the baby boomers were coming of age and a bunch of aging dudes whom had been the figureheads of motion picture studios for half a century found themselves at an utter loss when it came to what the use of the day wanted in a motion picture. It is during this time where horror films made the transition from classic horror to the films that are now considered modern horror. Basically anything after 1978, modern horror. Up until this point, the horror film had thrived primarily off of American shores, primarily in the hands of European filmmakers, whom set their stories in creepy locales that were isolated away from mundane society. The late 1970s changed this as the U.S. studios began having a vast influence on the market for the first time since the 30s and 40s, exchanging the haunted house in the middle of nowhere for everyday settings. For example, Stephen King's Carrie takes place primarily in a small-town high school which released in 1976 versus the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which released two years prior and took place in a remote southern hellhouse. Along with these locale changes came a shift in focusing on defeating evil every time to having some instances where the good side actually loses, like in The Omen. Inspired by films like Texas Chainsaw, as well as films like Psycho from 1960, one group of filmmakers would harbor in the subgenre known as the slasher film. Texas Chainsaw Massacre had seen huge success, especially in the drive-in movie market, and people were eager to find something similar to cash in on. Several tried, but the first to find any real success was John Carpenter with his team and their film, Halloween. John Carpenter was approached by independent film producer Erwin Yablins and financier Mustafa Akkad, whom sought him out to direct a film for them about a psychotic killer that stalked babysitters. They had seen Carpenter's film Assault on Precinct 13 from 1976 at the Milan Film Festival and had been very impressed with him. Yablins had been searching for a director that could make a film that would have the same cultural impact as The Exorcist had had in 1973 and believed his search was over. Over. Carpenter agreed to do the film they wanted, contingent upon his having full creative control and a $10,000 payday, which included writing, directing, and scoring the film. He and his then-girlfriend-slash-producing partner, Deborah Hill, began drafting a story which they'd originally entitled The Babysitter Murders. Yablin subsequently suggested setting the movie on Halloween night and naming it Halloween instead, to which Carpenter agreed and redeveloped the story with that premise in mind. If you've never seen the original Halloween film, the premise is pretty straightforward. 15 years after he was institutionalized for killing his sister when he was just six years old, Michael Myers breaks out of that institution and makes his way back to his hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois, to continue his reign of terror. The only one aware of the carnage that Michael can truly wrought is his physician, Dr. Loomis, who flees to Haddonfield to warn them. The script is written over a period of somewhere between 10 days and 3 weeks, depending on the source. A few say 10, but Deborah Hill recalls it taking closer to 3 weeks. She also claimed that the film was based on the origins of Halloween itself, the Celtic festival of Samhain. Though it's never expressly brought up in this film, it is, however, incorporated into a novelization of the movie, which was released in 1979, and several of the subsequent sequels. Hill, whom had worked as a babysitter as a teen, wrote most of the female characters 
dialogue, while Carpenter was responsible for Dr. Loomis's speeches on the soullessness of Michael Myers. Many script details, in fact, were drawn from Carpenter's and Hill's own backgrounds and early careers. The fictional town of Haddonfield, Illinois, was named after Haddonfield, New Jersey, which was where Hill was raised, while several of the street names were taken from Carpenter's hometown of Bowling Green, Kentucky. Several characters were named after famous figures and other horror films, and Laurie Strode, the protagonist played by Jamie Lee Curtis, was reportedly named after one of Carpenter's former girlfriends. One of the perks of being a writer is you can name characters after people whom have slighted you and put them through literal or figurative hell. In devising the backstory for Michael Myers, Carpenter drew on haunted house folklore that exists in many small American communities. Quote, Most small towns have a kind of haunted house story of one kind or another, he stated in an interview. At least that's what teenagers believe. There's always a house down the lane that somebody was killed in or that somebody went crazy in. Carpenter's inspiration for the evil that Michael embodied came from a visit he had taken during college to a psychiatric institution in Kentucky. There, he and his psychology classmates came in contact with, quote, the most serious mentally ill patients the facility had. Among those patients was an adolescent boy whom possessed a, in Carpenter's words, schizophrenic stare. Carpenter's experience with the boy inspired the characterization that Loomis gave of Michael to Sheriff Brackett in the film. Speaking of Dr. Loomis, several major actors were offered the role, including Christopher Lee, whom turned it down due to the low salary. Lee would later call it the biggest mistake of his career. Eventually, Donald Pleasance was cast, whom was best known for his work in The Greatest Story Ever Told from 65 and THX 1138 from 1971. Jamie Lee Curtis, the daughter of Tony Curtis and former Hitchcock blonde Janet Lee, was eventually cast as Laurie Strode, although she was reportedly not the first choice for that role either. Making Halloween cost a mere $300,000, which was considered pretty small at the time, and financier Akkad worried over the budget, the tight four-week schedule that budget allowed, and Carpenter's limited experience as a filmmaker, despite having handpicked him himself. He later told Fangoria magazine, quote, two things made me decide. One, Carpenter told me the story verbally and in a suspenseful way, almost frame for frame. Second, he told me he didn't want to take any fees and that showed he had confidence in the project. Though in addition to the $10,000 he was given to do five different jobs for the film, Carpenter also retained rights to 10% of the film's profits. In case you didn't know, the iconic Michael Myers mask is actually a Captain Kirk mask that production designer, art director, location scout, and co-editor Tommy Lee Wallace purchased from a Hollywood Boulevard costume shop for a buck ninety-eight. He then spray-painted it a blue-white color and whitened the eye holes. For most other actors in the film, they wore their own clothes to keep production costs down, and Curtis's entire wardrobe cost about a hundred bucks and was purchased from department store JCPenney. Wallace described the filming process, which took place in Southern California over 20 days in May 1978, as uniquely collaborative, with cast members often helping move equipment, cameras, and helping facilitate setups. Very film schooly for those of you who've never attended. The crew had difficulty finding pumpkins in the springtime, and artificial fall leaves had to be reused for multiple scenes. Local families where the film was shot dressed their children in Halloween costumes for the trick-or-treating scenes. Carpenter also wrote all of the music for the film, including the famous theme which you heard at the break. 
It took Carpenter a whopping three days to compose the entire score for the film, but despite this, it is still one of the most recognizable film themes to this day. While simple, even the critics noted that the music was one of the strongest elements of the finished film. Carpenter stated in an interview, quote, I can play just about any keyboard, but I can't read or write a note. In the end credits, Carpenter bills himself as the Bowling Green Philharmonic Orchestra. After briefly struggling to find a distributor, Halloween would premiere on October 25th, 1978 in downtown Kansas City, Missouri at the AMC Empire Theater. Regional distribution in the Philadelphia and New York City metropolitan areas was acquired by Aquarius Releasing. The film grossed $1.27 million from 198 theaters across the U.S., which included 72 in New York and 98 in Southern California in its opening week. The film went on to gross $47 million in the United States and an additional $23 million internationally for a theatrical total of $70 million, making it one of the most successful independent films of all time and forever changing the notion that an independent film couldn't have mainstream success. Today, Halloween is considered to be one of the best films of 1978. Further, Halloween popularized many tropes that have become synonymous with the slasher genre. Halloween popularized the final girl trope, which is the killing off of characters who do drugs or are partakers of sexy time, leaving just the one virginal do-gooder alive, more often than not a woman, to finish off the killer once and for all. Carpenter, while definitely being responsible for the foundation of this element of slasher films, has stated that he had no intention of favoring the virginal Laurie Strode, but whether intentional or not, Halloween developed the foundation of the sex equals death mantra in the horror film. Halloween was also the film that popularized the use of a theme song for the killer and using POV shots from the killer's perspective to build tension. Due to its popularity and revolutionary filmmaking, Halloween became a blueprint for success that many other horror films, such as Friday the 13th and A Nightmare on Elm Street, further popularized and that films like Scream satirized. With the floodgates open, the slasher movies began pouring out of the silver screen, and this included Michael Myers' many returns there as well. Be in front of your TV sets for the horathon, and remember the big giveaway at nine. Don't miss it, and don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time. In 1981, Halloween II, the first of the seven original sequels, released. It is the only of the sequels that was also written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. The film takes place directly after the events of the first Halloween film, and this is the film that reveals that Jamie Lee Curtis's character Laurie Strode is secretly Michael Myers' younger sister, a fact she didn't know until this time, and something that would be retconned twice within the franchise. Carpenter and Hill had originally considered setting the sequel a few years after the events of Halloween. However, in script meetings, it was changed to the same night as the first film and was meant to conclude the story of Michael and Laurie. 
Carpenter did not want to direct the film, and this job was given to Rick Rosenthal, an underexperienced director whom had made a student film the producers had liked. After Halloween 2 released, Carpenter and Hill were approached about creating a third Halloween film, but they were reluctant. Carpenter notoriously had had a difficult time writing Halloween 2. The pair agreed to participate in, though not write, the new project, only if it wasn't a direct sequel to Halloween 2, which meant no Michael Myers. This led to Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, which released less than one year after Halloween 2 in October of 1982. The film was directed and written by Tommy Lee Wallace, whom had worked on the first two in various capacities and was the guy responsible for the creation of the Michael Myers mask. He had been approached to direct the first sequel, but had ultimately declined. This would be the last Halloween film that Hill or Wallace had anything to do with. Honesty time, I've been meaning to watch this film forever, but I've always kind of viewed it as no Michael Myers, no point, which I am not the only person in that camp. But if I'm going to do this episode right, I had to watch it with my eye holes. And I did it, so you don't have to unless what I'm about to describe appeals to you. If you love cheesy horror with wonky prosthetics and bad acting, it's fun and you'll probably like it, but it's far from a good movie. It's not even a so bad, it's a good movie. I thought the film was only like two hours long because of how I felt after watching it. Nope, only about 90 minutes. It's just, it's atrocious. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, just because it's a complete departure from the others, I'll give you a quick rundown of what happens. It begins in a hospital emergency room where Dr. Dan and Ellie Grimbridge, the daughter of a man whom had entered the ER clutching a pumpkin mask and was then murdered in the hospital by a man whom then ran out in the parking lot and lit himself and a car on fire, uncover a terrible plot by small-town mask maker Colonel Cochran. Cochran is planning a Halloween mass murder via an ancient Celtic ritual that for some reason makes children start vomiting bugs and snakes. The ritual involves a large rock stolen from Stonehenge, the use of the silver shamrock masks, and a triggering device contained in a television commercial, all designed to kill millions of children. Why? Just because. They don't really ever give a reason. Notably, the film doesn't take place in the same universe as the first two Halloween films, instead treating those as fictional. In fact, a commercial is seen at one point of the original Halloween film on a television. Wallace said later that he had tried to structure the film in a way that audiences whom had loved the first two would feel a through line with this one. It did not go well. If I hadn't known that this was Halloween 3, I would have never assumed that this was associated to a Michael Myers film in any way. The film was crucified by critics and didn't do all that well in the money department as audiences wanted to see Michael Myers wreaking all kinds of havoc on the citizens of Haddonfield, not some random Irish dude in bum F nowhere NorCal killing children with Halloween masks for no earthly reason. Many further felt cheated that a film bearing the Halloween title was not a Michael Myers film. And you know what? Totally agree with them. It's it's nonsense. After that disaster, producer Mustafa Akkad, whom would oversee all of the original eight films, wanted to bring Michael back to the big screen. Makes sense. Originally, Carpenter and Hill were going to return as producers again, but instead decided to sell their rights to the franchise to Akkad. By this time, the duo had already made several other popular sci-fi horror films, including The Fog from 1980, The Thing from 1981, and Escape from New York from 1982. The duo, they were ready to move on from Halloween. 
Akkad wanted to go back to basics with Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, and hired writer Alan B. McElroy in February 1988 to write the script, something he had to do in a mere 11 days because of a looming writer strike, which would have forced him to stop writing the script or be in violation of his union status. He developed a concept, pitched the story, and sent in the final draft in under 11 days. This was also the first Halloween film not to be shot in California, but rather Salt Lake City, Utah. The film takes place 10 years after the events of the second film, and the main protagonist is Lori's daughter, Jamie. That's right, Michael is chasing around his little niece now, and she may or may not have some of the family's less-than-stellar genes in her pool. The film released in October 1988 and did well for the time, though the critics didn't like it, though that's the case for most horror movies, especially the stabby stabby ones, but it did make enough money to warrant another sequel. Before Halloween 4 had released, the slasher genre had lost quite a bit of steam. As you'll learn this month, the market was pretty well inundated with them in the 1980s. Halloween 4 revitalized that. So much so that Akkad was already laying out the groundwork for the fifth installment, while the fourth was barely hitting theaters. Halloween 5 once again deals with Jamie, but in this film she is given supernatural powers and has like a connection to Michael Myers. Sort of think of it like Harry Potter in the second half of the books and films and his like psychic connection with Voldemort. It's very similar. There had been script versions written to make her evil to build on the final scene of 4 when she's clearly attacked her foster mother with a knife. But Akkad turned them all down. Several members of the cast, including Donald Pleasant, a.k.a. Dr. Loomis, and Daniel Harris, whom played Jamie, wanted her to remain evil and had believed that Jamie would be the villain in the fifth film. Her actions at the end of four were retconned slightly. Her foster mother survives Jamie's attack. And Jamie's actions at the end of four were blamed on a psychotic break to set up Michael Myers being the baddie in the film. Akata clearly learned his lesson after Season of the Witch. Michael Myers had to be the villain of a Halloween film. Despite Michael being the main baddie, Halloween 5 became the worst performing of the franchise upon its release in 1989, causing Akkad to stop work on another Halloween film. Instead, he wanted to take some time to reevaluate the earning potential of the Halloween franchise as a whole. An ensuing legal battle about the distribution rights to the films would ensue as well. Between 1989 and 1996, there was not a Halloween film to be found. But that doesn't mean they weren't working towards it. In 1990, screenwriter and longtime Halloween fan Daniel Ferens set out to write the sixth entry in the Halloween series, even managing to get his script to Ramsey Thomas, whom was a producer on the fifth film. Impressed by his writing skills, Thomas set a meeting for Ferens and Akkad to meet. Akkad was impressed with Ferens, but didn't give him the job at first. Instead, he played the field with no real story idea in mind. Notable people whom were approached to write Halloween 6 included Quentin Tarantino, whom was writing the film under the caveat that Evil Dead 2 director Scott Spiegel was going to direct it. In Tarantino's pitch for the script, Michael Myers and the Man in Black, whom had taken him and niece Jamie at the end of five, flee Haddonfield together and go on a road trip down Route 66, murdering people. 
Tarantino was never officially hired, and Spiegel later departed the project, ending any prospect of that film going forward. Instead, the ideas that Tarantino came up with for Halloween 6 seem to have heavily influenced his other film, Natural Born Killers. John Carpenter was even asked to return at one point and proposed setting the film in space, but Mustafa Akkad rejected this. Other concepts involved Michael being found to be Dr. Loomis's son or Michael's mother being kept as a sex slave by the man in black. Craptastic ideas abound. Exhausting, I guess, every other idea, in June 1994, Ferens was hired to write a new screenplay for the Halloween franchise as the film had an impending shoot date scheduled for October in Salt Lake City, Utah. Yep, no script in any form, but they had a plan to make a movie. Farron's later said his initial intent for Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, aka Halloween 6, was to, quote, bridge the later films, 4 to 5, in the series, to the earlier films, 1 and 2, while at the same time taking the story into new territory so that the series could expand for future installments. This, in part, meant expanding on the presence of the Man in Black, as well as the appearance of the Thorn rune symbol, both of which appeared without explanation at the end of Halloween 5. In beginning the script, Ferens had contacted the writers of 4 and 5 for additional information, but they were unable to provide clear answers, leaving him to quote-unquote pick up the pieces. 4, 5, and 6 are now known as the Thorn Trilogy within the franchise because of Ferens' work to make them flow together. Set six years after the events of Halloween 5, the plot follows Michael as he stalks the Strode family, cousins of the original Strode family, in order to kill his last surviving relative, a child born to Jamie. Dr. Loomis pursues him once more. The film also reveals the source of Michael's immortality and his drive to kill. It's because he's, and I'm quoting the movie here, quote, pure, uncorrupted, ancient evil. In early 1995, after filming and editing was completed, Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers was given a test screening in New York City, which, as described by actress Marion Hagen, whom played Kara Strode, the main female protagonist of the film, quote, consisted primarily of 14-year-old boys. During the Q&A afterward, one of the audience members expressed great displeasure at the ending of the film, which had a Celtic ritual and passed on the curse of Thorn, which made Michael evil, to Dr. Loomis. As a result of the audience's huge disapproval towards the film's finale, the movie was rushed back into production, this time without Donald Pleasance, whom had died on February 2nd, 1995. Pleasance had been in ill health during the shooting of the film, which is quite clear in his scenes. Reshoots took place in Los Angeles, California in the summer of 1995. A. Michael Lerner replaced George P. Wilbur in the role of Michael Myers as the studio executives wanted him to appear thinner. This resulted in an abundance of continuity errors as the last third of the theatrical release of the film features a very noticeably thinner Michael Myers. Like, it's really, really noticeable. Remember, kids, non-creative studio executives are almost never right in matters of creativity. In the theatrical release, Gone was the cult stuff, which is instead played down as much as possible. In the film, the climax of the film takes place in a lazily dressed, like, mad scientist room. I've been in better constructed escape rooms than this room was. Michael's basically beaten to death by Paul Rudd's character, this is his film debut, whom in the next scene is just magically back with the other characters in a poorly done effort to hide the lack of pleasance during reshoots. The theatrical cut 
also amped up the gore in several places, which cheapened the film overall. The movie that this yielded is just a mess. The film's troubled production and disagreements about how the film should end resulted in two cuts of the film, with two very different endings, which prompted a legal battle between the film's production company, Nightfall, who wanted to release the original cut, which is now known as the producer's cut, and its distributor, Dimension Films, whom had incorporated the reshoots and additional material and wanted that version released. Ultimately, Dimension Films won the dispute, and their cut of the film was ultimately the theatrical release. Both cuts are now widely available as a fervent fan campaign managed to get the studio to release the original version after everyone collectively just hated the theatrical one. I'll let you come to your own conclusions if you want to watch both, but of the two, one is clearly more fleshed out, and it ain't the theatrical one. Don't get me wrong, neither is a great movie, but one of the films is definitely the shinier turd. And who the hell was letting 14-year-old boys drive major movie decisions over at Dimension? While the film did just about as well commercially as Halloween 2, the first to do so but 14 years after Halloween 2 is not great, it was obliterated by critics and fans alike. In fact, it has the lowest approval rating of all of the films on Rotten Tomatoes. Despite the energy and passion of a young writer, critics describe the film as tired, which yeah, nothing moved the genre forward in any way with this film. Well, New Blood wasn't working. What if we also add in some nice nostalgia? In 1998, in conjunction with the 20th anniversary of the first film, Halloween H2O was released, the first film since 1981 to bring back Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. This film is a direct sequel to Halloween 2 and therefore ignores the events in 4 through 6. The original idea for the seventh Halloween film began as the second half of a treatment written by Ferens during pre-production of Halloween 6. It was later submitted as a new treatment for 7 entitled Michael Myers, Lord of the Dead. He tried another pitch, which would have been called Halloween 7, Two Faces of Evil, which would have seen Michael stalking an all-female boarding school. This idea was tweaked here and there for a while, before being scrapped entirely. The eventual screenplay for H2O was based on a story by Kevin Williamson, with the original working title for the film being Halloween 7, The Revenge of Laurie Strode. Williamson was initially hired to write a script, and the story was situated as a sequel to the previous six films, thereby keeping the timeline's continuity. This too was later scrapped, favoring a direct sequel to just the first two. So no Jamie, no Men in Black, no Thorn Cult, poof, never happened. In the film, Lori works as a headmistress for a private boarding school under an assumed name. She faked her death to hide from her murderous brother. She also has a son whom is endlessly frustrated with his mother's fear of Halloween. After all, Michael died in a fire 20 years prior. But because this is a horror movie, Michael, shock horror, survived, finds Lori, and shit goes down at Hillcrest Academy. Bringing Jamie Lee back proved to be the way to go, and casting a crop of popular young TV actors and a musician didn't hurt the film either. The cast included Michelle Williams, who was on Dawson's Creek at the time, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who was on Third Rock from the Sun, and Ello Cool J, who was a chart-topping artist and had also recently broken into acting. The film made $55 million its opening weekend, obliterating the franchise's opening weekend record. It even got halfway okay-ish reviews, great one considering it's a horror movie. Riding this high, four years later, came Halloween Resurrection, which is the first one I saw in theaters. I was 12, so do with that what you will. 
This was the one with Busta Rhymes and Tyra Banks in it, so you already know from that lineup, it was going to be a rough ride. The film follows the events of H2O with the same writers whom were stuck with a dilemma. Jamie Lee had wanted to completely end the Halloween series, but Mustafa Akkad had a clause that legally couldn't allow writers to kill off Michael Myers. Curtis had only agreed to be a part of H2O under the condition that no footage hinting towards a sequel would be presented by the film and that the audience would believe that Michael was dead until the inevitable sequel was announced. Resurrection's first shot of Michael in the paramedic uniform was actually filmed the day after H2O's principal photography ended, according to H2O's editor, Patrick Lussier. Sneaky, sneaky, you guys. Resurrection tried to appeal to the youths by making the film circle around an internet reality show. This was right at the beginning of the reality TV boom of the early noughties that was based in the Michael Myers house. Michael starts killing, but people watching think it's a part of the show and therefore do nothing to help the inhabitants. Unfortunately for the filmmakers, Resurrection did not have the success of H2O. Far from it, in fact. The week it released, it peaked at number four at the box office, a far fall from the previous film. It seemed that audiences, after 24 years, had finally tired of Michael Myers. Mustafa Akkad, the producer of the first eight Halloween films, passed away on November 11th, 2005, leaving the Halloween franchise without its biggest supporter. On June 4th, 2006, Dimension Films announced that Rob Zombie, director of nightmare fuel like House of a Thousand Corpses and The Devil's Rejects, would be creating the next Halloween film, which originally was going to be a sequel to the previous films because apparently no one had learned anything. There had been many ideas of what to do with the franchise within Dimension, even talks to bring the character of Jamie back that all fell flat. Instead, they focused on a singular film with Rob Zombie at the helm. Before this news went public, Zombie approached John Carpenter for his blessing, and he gave it under the caveat that Zombie, quote, make it his own film, which is what was ultimately made. Zombie's film would combine the elements of a prequel and a remake with his Halloween film, and also incorporated new lore like the fact that Michael makes his own mask while in the asylum. Zombie wanted to reinvent the character as he felt Michael, along with several other famous slashers, had become too familiarized in pop culture and were therefore less terrifying to modern audiences. The film did okay financially, bombed critically, but Dimension soon announced another Rob Zombie Halloween film in 2008, which released in 2009. Called Halloween 2, the film takes the mythos of Michael in a completely new direction than the franchise's original run. Zombie later explained that with this sequel, he was no longer bound by a sense of needing to retain any, quote, John Carpenter-ness, as he felt, quote, free to do whatever. The film did far worse than its predecessor, and even though another sequel was planned, another one, it was ultimately canceled in 2012 when Rob Zombie refused to return. The first one had wiped him out, and the second, he was done. Was the Halloween franchise done too? 
Of course not. A new effort to make another Halloween film called Halloween Returns was attempted in 2015 and would be unrelated to the Rob Zombie films. This was ultimately canceled when Dimension Films lost the rights to Halloween to Miramax. On March 23, 2016, it was reported that Miramax and Blumhouse Films were developing a new film which they would co-finance. On February 9, 2017, John Carpenter himself announced that the film was going to be written by David Gordon Green and Danny McBride, yes, the comedian, and would be directed by Green. This new film and the subsequent sequels retconned even more of the series than had been done previously. This new Halloween would be a direct sequel to the original film from 1978 and would ignore all all of the previous sequels. This meant that Laurie Strode is not the sister of Michael Myers, a plot twist that occurred in the second film. In September 2017, Jamie Lee Curtis confirmed that she would reprise her role as Laurie Strode. On October 17, 2017, Carpenter announced that he would be returning to score the film. Halloween, just to make shit as confusing as possible, was released in 2018 to critical and box office success. Halloween became the highest grossing film in the franchise by the time its run was over. It was new, but it was also nostalgic and audiences and critics alike responded positively to that. The near decade break between the films likely didn't hurt either. In June 2019, it was reported that a sequel would begin filming in September 2019, and there would be another film to follow after that. In July 2019, the titles and release dates of two sequels were announced. Halloween Kills, set to be released on October 16th, 2020, and Halloween Ends, set to be released on October 15th, 2021. Green would direct both films and Crow write the scripts with McBride, and Curtis will reprise her role in both films. However, because COVID, both films were delayed by a year and Halloween Kills is scheduled to be released on October 15th, 2021, aka this Friday if you're listening to this on release week, and Halloween ends on October 14th, 2022. So this Friday, believe it or not, I scheduled this completely by coincidence, we will once again return to Haddonfield. Michael's been waiting for us. 40 years ago, the boogeyman came for us. We are the survivors of Michael Myers. Lori, what do we do? We fight. Mom, our family will kill him. We're going to hunt him down and we're going to put an end to this. He is not going to stop killing until we stop him. If you track Michael's victims, that's a straight line to Michael's childhood home. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're covering the origins and history of the Voorhees family as we go into the history of the Friday the 13th franchise. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. 